Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, Big Topics, an AGA Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson. And I'm CSC. Good to meet you guys today. How are you doing, CS? We're doing great and excited to talk about green endoscopy today and climate change and GI with two of our hosts. We have Nina Huja, who's the co-director of the program in Neurogastroenterology and Motility and Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we have Dr. Amit Patel, who is an esophagologist and reflux specialist down at Duke University, where he is an associate professor of medicine. Now, CS, I, I got to tell you, only in the last year have I known what the heck green endoscopy is and what climate change and gastroenterology have to do with each other. Is this a new area for you or is this something you are well-versed in? Well, I just learned about it 60 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is you're an expert already. Well, expert novice, yes. <laughs> It's been interesting that you've seen more and more papers on this through some of the gastro papers, some of the ticky papers. DDW had a few sessions on it. It does seem like a topic that, you know, frankly, I didn't know much about, but it has been on the rise. That's exactly right. I think for me, I've been hearing about the topic, but don't know anything about it. So that's what makes this podcast, I think, especially interesting for me to actually talk to people who are in the space of doing green endoscopy, climate change and GI planetary health and how gastroenterology interacts with this sphere. And it's not something I thought about, but I've been hearing a lot about. Yeah, this is a topic that's a little bit different for us where I feel like it's very new. There's not much about it, and this is really a great learning opportunity for a lot of us who care about this topic, but aren't quite sure how it interacts with our day-to-day lives. Right, and I think Bowden and Ahmed do a good job of saying why we should care, what is this topic about, and some ways in which they themselves have already changed their practice um, towards a healthier planet. And full disclosure, Nithin's dog also has strong <laughs> opinions during this episode. Yeah, right. Well, here his dog uh, chime in on certain parts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Without further ado, Dr. Ahuja, Dr. Patel, and we are discussing green endoscopy, climate change within gastroenterology. Here we go. Why don't we start with, Nathan, if you want to go first, and Amit, if you go second. Nathan, why don't you just introduce yourself, say who you are, what you do on a day-to-day basis, what's your job? My name is Nitin Ahuja. I'm an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And my focus in gastroenterology is on neurogastroenterology and motility disorders. Hi, Amit Patel. Thanks so much for um, having me on to talk about climate change and gastroenterology. I'm an esophagologist at Duke University. So I've noticed that neither of your titles has green endoscopist, climate change leader, climate change advocate for the institution in your working title. So Why don't we start with how did you guys become interested in this topic? How did you learn about it? And really, how did this become a passion for both of you? So I guess I'm somewhat of a late adopter. Matt and I started this journey together towards uh, awareness of green endoscopy and climate change and GI 
I'll have to start it through the AGA Future Leaders Program. Uh, big shout out to leadership and staff there. Uh, Doctors Field, Guy Wallach, Cooper, Selena Nukwe, and Mingo Grand, different. Matt and I were um, grouped together through this program under the mentorship of Mike Coachman. And um, we selected a societal driver that was identified by the AGA. And for us, it was climate change. And that kind of started our journey about two years ago into awareness of what's happening with this. And excited to talk about that. Nathan, what about for you, man? You've authored papers in this arena, so how did you get involved? Yeah, I mean, in the very beginning, it was just ambient anxiety, as is true for a lot of us about climate change. I think it was not professional, but the sort of professional connection came from realizing that there are real stakes for health in climate change that we just weren't talking about in the clinic at, at any stage of my training, medical school, which is a while ago. I think the medical students now are talking about this, but you know, residency in internal medicine and then in GI. So I was trying to bridge the sense of, frankly, irony that I had that we were doing all sorts of stuff inside the clinic and the endoscopy suite to help move the needle on health. But meanwhile, a much larger needle was moving in kind of the opposite direction. And then was just fortunate to get plugged into some society efforts as a result of that early interest. So maybe in broad strokes, tell us how GI interacts with climate change. A lot of people don't know about it. I frankly don't know. When I first heard of it from Matt, I was like, really? What? <laughs> so when I asked other people too, you know, it's like a big question mark. You know, you think of climate change and cars, but GI, you're like, uh, you know, I haven't thought of that. So broad strokes, what are the interactions there? Yeah, I mean, I think Matt and I started our journey by educating ourselves right, and learning more about, you know, it's a complex relationship between GI and climate change. And it really goes both ways. So the implications of climate change for global health, right, especially among disadvantaged populations, to potentially exacerbate health inequities. But when we think about GI health in particular, and the effects of climate change on that, clean water availability, enteric infections, nutrition, and food security, and of course, healthcare in- infrastructure and access. So that clear implications for GI health, us as providers and our patients. But from a perspective of responsibility, how we contribute as a GI community to climate change, healthcare contributes significantly to climate change. There's the statistic that we became intimately familiar with that if healthcare were its own country, it would have the fifth largest carbon footprint in the world. But for GI in particular, GI endoscopy is the third highest generator of waste in healthcare. When we think about how many endoscopic procedures we perform, right, in the U.S., it's upwards of 20 million a year. The single-use products and consumables, the non-renewable chemical waste disposal, the device reprocessing, the decontamination, like we have, we're big contributors and there's a lot we can do to make things better. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think what we often sort of defer to the limits of our scope of practice as specialists and even more as subspecialists. Like I I do neurogastroenterology, so like IBD is outside my field. And I think there's maybe an analogy to climate change for the the novice professional. This is sort of outside of our professional scope. We focus on individual patients. We are not necessarily all public health professionals, let alone climate activists. But I think for me, the sort of like broad strokes argument is sort of awakening to a larger ethical calculus that we are, you know, like it or not, tied to tied to an ecosystem. And our decisions exist within an ecosystem. Our decisions being, you know, whether or not to perform a procedure and if so, with you know, how much attendant waste. So I think this is true for every branch of medicine, in my mind, as well as every industry, that we need to start reckoning with the ecosystem in which we exist. That felt like a deeper philosophical point, I think, that we all struggle with. And, I, and I'm glad both of you that we're starting off on the basis that climate change is real. We're not having some of the 
conversation that may be in the, the lay population. You guys brought up there's an impact directly for our patients. There's an access component, but also the kind of what GI is contributing to it. Can you guys give it come in more granular examples as to what gastroenterology in our practice is contributing to? So when we talk about green endoscopy, which is a term that's now out there, what are the components that really do produce waste that we might be able to in our ecosystem affect? That's a I mean, great question. And for me, a lot of this starts with when we do procedures. Obviously, we'll get into the how, uh, but when we talk about when we do procedures, there's probably a lot of overuse with endoscopic procedures we do and minimizing unnecessary endoscopic procedures based on guidelines and evidence is important. And it's so nice when our clinical guidance and evidence really align with that, right? So evidence-based extensions of surveillance intervals for low-risk adenomas from five to seven years or short-segment non-dysplastic Barrett's from three to five years, when we can safely reduce our lower-yield endoscopic burden and volumes in these evidence-based ways that protect patients to focus on higher-yield procedures or settings, it's really nice because I think we're aligning sustainability and this idea of green endoscopy by reducing our carbon footprint. Yeah, again, really well said. I think, Matt, point taken that like my bias is definitely towards like 30,000 foot pie in the sky, like theoretical <laughs> like discussions about climate change, but it is helpful to have sort of specific examples. I think, you know, just the individual procedure, the extent to which we don't think about like even basic things, like we don't have a recycling bin in the endoscopy room. So like that is like a good ground level place to start. And the individual procedure sort of bleeds out into the way that the hospital itself operates in terms of using electricity and water and to what extent there are guardrails on the utilization of these resources. And then it bleeds out still further into supply chains and how we manufacture things and the conversation about reusables versus disposables. That's obviously an ambient one right now. And I think it has real implications for like downstream material waste accumulation so levels on levels, I think I still wrestle, frankly, personally with like where to focus, like how does it move the needle to have a recycling bin in the endoscopy room, like in the largest sort of ecological conversation, recycling, I think sort of, it amounts to individual consumer level recycling amounts to like kind of a meditative act, like not really moving the needle on greenhouse gases, but like does bring you into a better frame of mind. I've been told or kind of learned that just the chemicals we sterilize the scopes with. And obviously that's a very important part for us. And you know, our community has dealt with infections via like ERCP scopes in the past. I've also been told that just kind of cleaning a scope can generate a significant amount of waste. Is that correct as well? I think it is true. I mean, I think we still need a lot of data, better data on life cycle analyses regarding an individual piece of equipment and what the delta is in terms of how much waste is generated from a disposable versus a reusable. And there are different kinds of waste, you know, like material waste versus water waste versus electricity waste versus like chemical effluent into our common supplies. So all of that, I think, needs to be parsed with a little bit more granularity, but neither is neutral right now. I absolutely agree with that. And when this need for more robust, more granular data. So, for example, the volumes and types of waste we generate for that's specific for the types of devices we use endoscopically, the particular you know, procedures and services we provide, like that'll help us generate more evidence-based roadmaps and approaches for best practices when we think about 
how we can reduce our carbon footprint delivering services and taking care of patients. And it's a big ask, and I know it's coming out, but collaboration is so important with this. And I know that you can speak more to this, but when we talk about working with environmentalists, working with engineers, working with economists, I mean, that's going to help, particularly with all the innovation that we're seeing with how we practice endoscopy. So for GI and climate change, is it mostly endoscopic related or are there other aspects of GI that's contributing to climate change? I'm curious to hear what Amit says, but I think, you know, endoscopy is a logical place to start in terms of resource utilization. Like it's easily envisioned, but I think, you know, the cognitive aspects of our work are, are what lead to the endoscopy. And so thinking seriously about like how we, approach patients and how we talk about scopes and the threshold at which we set our need to intervene or diagnose. And then I I think, you know, just the mechanics of how we run our practice also, like basic things like telehealth versus person office visits. I mean, this was a paradigm that could have been really exciting around the pandemic, but for various institutional reasons, at least here in the States, like hasn't stuck. But I think there's for sure more than than endoscopy to talk about with regard to climate change. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, endoscopy is kind of low-hanging fruit when we think about what we you know provide or do on a specific level or what's unique to us. You know, when we're talking about how we do procedures or how we do endoscopy, you also try to teach our trainees obviously performing single-session bidirectional endoscopy when it's appropriate, using the same endoscope when that's possible, minimizing the numbers of different devices we use endoscopically, the accessories, um, specimen containers, things like that can be helpful. And then with endo-unit workflow, I know Nitin talked about recycling, you know, incorporating that as a big part of what we do in the endo-unit, but also electronic consents that are paperless, documentation, reports, path letters, things like that can be really helpful as well. Okay, so I think we have some good examples as to what aspects of gastroenterology and hepatology contribute to climate change. So how, and Amit, you started to kind of tease this out, how is climate change going to impact our patients? I think there's a few different ways possibly in, in terms of what environment looks like. We're obviously seeing increases certain diseases as the environment has changed or as kind of like the microbiota perhaps is changing and everything else. What can we expect for our patients in, in the years to come over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Think big things I think relate to clean water availability and we talked about food security as well. Another thing we didn't mention was mental health. It's association with GI diseases. I mean, Nitha knows a lot about that. And I'm really excited to hear him talk more about, we haven't mentioned this joint multi-society strategic plan that Nitin authored that came out this year that it was you know exemplary landmark document to serve as a foundation for how we can move forward and really highlighting the issue. So excited to hear more about that. Yeah, happy to talk about it. I think in that document we sort of review the overlapping qualities of the entities that we take care of in office and the sort of larger phenomena that we could expect as a result of climate change. I think Matt, you mentioned this earlier, or maybe it was Amit, I forget, the idea of healthcare disparities. And, you know, not all of these eventualities will affect all populations equally. So I think, you know, here too, it sort of depends on what we call our patients. Like, what is our charge as gastroenterologists? And I think, you know, first and foremost, we're physicians and ought to be thinking about health as a collective good. But in addition to mental health, infectious disease, microbial changes, you know, respiratory illness, heat-related illness, cardiovascular disease, and then, you know, basic geopolitical issues related to climate change causing 
pretty blunt kinds of health effects in terms of migration and conflict and things like that. I mean, all of that, I think, is downstream if we don't change our course. So with regard to the strategic plan, if you'd like me to talk about that now, would you like me to talk about that now? Sure. Yes, please. This is an effort that was put forward by the four major GI societies, the AGA, the ACG, the AASLD, and the ASGE, with two representatives each appointed to this task force. And all of us kind of came to it in slightly different ways in terms of credentials, but none of us had made this like our life's effort. So all pretty new to the issue. And ultimately the plan is kind of an ambitious one. It's got several different domains represented, including not just optimizing clinical settings for sustainable practices, but education, research, society efforts, intra-society efforts, industry and advocacy with kind of tasks or wish list items under each domain with an anticipated timeline for when we'd like to see those things happen. So that's just to say that similar to the effects of climate change, the ways to approach it are all also kind of interrelated. Like you can't affect the clinical setting without the research to know how to do that. I mean, you can draw lines between all of these different domains. So that's kind of how we got to this more sort of complex document. This is as distilled as we could get it. And it remains ambitious, but it is nice to have at least a starting point to start talking about how we can collaborate on on this very large project. In, in the document, for those that haven't read this, it was published in the lead journals for all the societies, correct? That's in right. hepatology and gastro. Yeah. So obviously, people can access that pretty much anywhere. But kind of what were there some favorite things in there of yours that you were really excited about? I, I know you guys mentioned we need data collection and we need research about what our waste actually is and really be granular about it. But were there other things in there that really excite you about the future? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to pick one. Like, see, these meetings, we often sort of have conversations about, like, pick your three priorities or pick the three, like, lowest hanging fruit. And those are different questions. I think, like, impact versus feasibility versus, like, near term and long term. Like, all of those are sort of important considerations for agenda setting. But for me, again, cards on the table, my bias is, like, big picture stuff. I think what's exciting is like getting outside of ourselves as a profession and thinking about creative collaborations with industry who really drive a lot of this decision-making. I mean, we don't, in my personal opinion, leverage our stake in those relationships as much as we could or should in part because of our, you know, heterogeneous professional opinion. But I think there's ground to be covered there. Oh, I was just wondering, you know, both Ahmed and Nidin, since you started on this GI and climate change journey, have you guys made any changes to your own practice? And if not, maybe what are the things you want to do next? Or if you've done it, maybe you can share it with us. So we thought there was a lot to be done here. I thought we thought that there wasn't the degree of awareness about GI and climate change that we expected. And that really you know, underlined the need to really reach broadly across the GI community to try to increase awareness of engagement with climate change. And then to get to your question, CS, I, the biggest things when we talk about you know, when we do procedures and how we do procedures, those are the two biggest things that you know, I've tried to focus on in my personal practice. Again, as a pretty late adopter, but we talked about minimizing unnecessary procedures when possible. And when we're actually doing procedures, we talked about using the same scope for 
bidirectional endoscopy when it's appropriate, doing things as paperless or electronically as possible, and then minimizing the number of different accessories and specimen jars we use. So example, colon polyps on the screen, colon, really trying to minimize the number of pathology jars you know, we use, as well as just to keep there and avoid forceps if we've already started on that path. Things like that have kind of been low-hanging fruit for um, little late adopters like me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think those sort of mindful acts of in the endoscopy suite, like minimizing jars and choosing a little bit more deliberately between forceps and a snare for like a small polyp. But these are kind of minor issues in the grand scheme. And my, again, personal opinion is that like, we shouldn't necessarily expect a lot of individual doctors to be going rogue with their practice patterns, like on an environmental agenda. I think like this needs to happen with the backing and protection of society-based guidelines in order for this to be done thoroughly and responsibly. Now, so this is an, I'm not going to say it's a new topic, but let's say it's a new topic to a lot of people. The societies are now issuing statements in the last year, give or take. So there probably has a lot of work to be done in terms of learning about this. So how can we kind of integrate this into and how should we integrate this into kind of educational venues? So I've noticed that at DDW this past May, you know, when we're recording this about a week ago now, there was obviously some sessions there. There's some articles out there. But what else should we be doing to kind of get the word out, to kind of gather interest for this kind of big collaboration that you're alluding to, Nathan? And then what else should we be doing for our trainees and for students? It's a great question. I'll start with the first half of it. You know, when we look back five years, even three years ago, there wasn't a lot out there in the literature at our national meetings about climate change. But now we've got this increasing body of literature, gastroenterology, TIGE. We talked about publication of the Joint Multi-Society Strategic Plan this year. And then we just look at DDW this month. There was so much great content on climate change. There was the ASG Burke and Dowd lecture by Dr. Pohl on GI practices for climate sustainability there was an excellent AGA Future of Innovation and Endoscopy session that included a um, presentation on climate change and GI by Dr. Omri. And probably most importantly, this joint DDW clinical symposium on reducing the carbon footprint in GI hepatology. So an entire session joint between the societies with a lot of really excellent content on climate emergency, green endoscopy, green hepatology, uh, and what societies are doing to tackle climate change. So when we think about how far we've come, it's not all gloom and doom. I think there's been a lot of increasing awareness and engagement. I know at ACG this year, Nathan will tell us more, right? There's content that, that follows this path as well. So it's really nice to see everyone pitching in and I don't want to say raising the alarm, but getting the message across to the GI community. You've got to imagine the hepatologists are thrilled with the phrase green hepatology being healthy, healthy livers green. Like, you know, it just works so well for them. I think I mean, this sort of question of curricular design, Matt, is interesting. Like, what's the best way to do this? I think certainly from last year to this year, DDW, it's great that there's like a spotlight on this issue. I think, you know, next steps, it'd be nice to see some of these topics interwoven into like existing symposia so that it's not like opt-in if you're interested in climate change, like schlep across the convention center to this other, like, you know, sit for an hour and a half and talk about climate. Like, it'd be nice if like... In the Barrett session, there was like a conversation about the impact of the change in guidelines about short segment Barrett's on emissions or, you know, just something like that. I think from an ethics standpoint, like there's obviously a lot to say from a just 
high value care perspective, there's a lot to say. So like there are existing symposia on this issue already. It'd be nice to like highlight it a bit more within those sessions. And I think that does a better job of getting the word out than where we're at within this current paradigm. So, you know, anything's better than nothing. No, that makes sense. So what have you guys seen about in med school specifically, right? So I think we all know that teaching the next generation or the next generations about these topics that are going to be even more dramatic for them in the future probably is going to get us that build on that momentum forward because the youth really does drive a lot of change here. What can we be doing in med school? What can we be doing with our own trainees outside of the national conferences and and journals? Yeah, you're right. I mean, my sense is that med students are really advocating for their own curricular reform in this direction, which is great. The, I think the phrase planetary health is often what's preferred in the context of medical school curricula. That's what I've seen, the, the sort of most progressive one to have used that moniker. I think like in between med school and being a fully trained gastroenterologist, it's harder to know sort of how that fits in with the already like very robust fire hose of like clinical education. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's lessons to be gleaned from like the extent to which quality improvement and disparities have already infiltrated our curriculum. Like these are just sort of lenses through which to look at what we do in a, in a more productive and system healthy way. So I think uh, we can easily just follow those paradigms at least. That makes sense. Maybe just as a very concise pitch or statement, like what's your best pitch about why people should care about this issue, GI and climate change, whether you're talking to, like you said, like seasoned gastroenterologists and private practice or those who are up and coming gastroenterologists or those academic centers, like what's a nice little nutshell that says, why is this important? Well, I think it's a very basic level. If we don't care and do our part, we're not going to be able to practice GI in the future. And it might not affect our generation, but it absolutely will affect those coming after us. And that, you know, alone should be enough responsibility for us to take action. See, our canine colleagues are agreeing with us in yeah, real time as well. About, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm bad at nutshells, CS. Sorry, I've been kind of on the rambly side. But I would probably say something similar to Amit that, like, change is coming whether we like it or not downstream of this issue. So it'd be nice to be ahead of it and like part of its architecture if possible. You're stealing Game of Thrones, change is coming? Yes. Okay. And if we don't change it, winter is no longer coming. So that also works. (laughs) (laughs) Nathan, this might be a question for you. Could you, if people want to learn more about this topic, where would you suggest they look? So I think we can kind of say the the multi-society guideline or piece would maybe a starting point. Are there other good papers or resources you can point them out to? Yeah, I think cited within that document are a lot of the other society guidelines internationally, which are slightly different in their tone and ambition. And then there is good work being done on greenhouse gas emission calculations, life cycle analysis, and it's all early days, but like a good paradigm to follow because I think it will expand. Sorry, do you want me to say this again? Do you hear the dog? We do. I but hear it. It's okay. okay. The dog agrees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if he's disagreeing and there's a climate denier, then yeah, it's time for a trip to the... Well, no, that's pretty dark. <laughs> trip to the vet. Trip yeah, to the vet. we occupy the same end of the political spectrum, I think. Um, <laughs> 
I forget where I was. But anyway, I think just like green endoscopy is a problematic phrase, but a useful one. And I think like searching that term will yield a lot. And then sustainable gastroenterology, like all of these are synonyms that, you know, any salient paper will probably have that in its title. So where can people follow you or find you if they want to contact you? What's the best way? Email, Twitter, Instagram? Yeah, Twitter's my only social media device, so that'd be the place to find me most easily. But I can certainly give out my email. So it's my first name dot last name at penmedicine.upen.edu. Glad to help plug in anyone who's interested in, in the effort because I, I do think that it's going to need to be a pretty big tent. And I agree. I mean, Nitin has been so helpful. When Matt and I laid adopters to our journey, you know, Nitin was sort of our first contact and he helped you know, guide us and orient us uh, on our journey. Although Matt and I still have a long ways to go, you know, I think that kind of mentorship and spreading the word is incredibly valuable. It's been so helpful for Matt and myself. Where can people follow you on it or where can they contact you? I'm also on Twitter. My email is my first name, dot last name, duke.edu. And I'm happy to share you know, my experience. One thing that was nice about Matt and I doing this journey together was I think we kind of bring different things to our, our triad. AGA. Matt obviously has expertise in medical education and communication. This podcast, I had experiences with clinical guidance and advocacy. And so it's been really nice learning from each other, you know, along with the mentorship of uh, Dr. Coachman, of course. But I just wanted to, one last thing I wanted to mention about advocacy is that you know, there's a lot of issues that are important, that are priorities. And so when we did our um, 2023 AGA advocacy priority survey, we published the highlights in this month's issue of Gastro. You know, our membership cited a spectrum of issues as important. So things like GI health disparities, equity inclusion, prior authorization, private equity, research funding, these are all really important and they all deserve our attention, our resources. This is a theme that was echoed in the AGA working group on climate change that Matt and I had an opportunity to join in on. But at the end of the day, what Matt and I kept noticing this theme was that climate change is intricately linked and in fact aligned with a lot of these issues we talked about how the effects of climate change are inequitable. They contribute to health disparities. Climate change directly and indirectly contributes to burnout among GI communities. And we have opportunities to leverage AI and other innovations to try to help with this shift towards higher yield, lower waste endoscopy and reducing our carbon footprint. So climate change, as Nitin mentioned, should be a part of every conversation or symposium, almost every conversation or symposium that relates to GI because it is intimately and intricately linked and associated with so many of these issues and aligning these will be very helpful when we look towards how we can mitigate climate change and move forward. As we wind down, there's one last question we ask kind of all of our guests. You know, we have a lot of young career GIs, some trainees that are really our core listenership. So what career advice was the best advice you got as everyone kind of launches their career or as young faculty are, are looking to steer their careers, what's the advice that you got in general that really worked for you and that you would pass on? For me, I think our societies are an incredibly valuable resource as we're training and starting off as early career faculty to get involved. They offer so many resources, mentorship, educational programming, and so many ways to contribute to our community. There's such a myriad of opportunities that finding something that you're passionate about should be relatively straightforward and low-hanging fruit. And then you get a chance to meet like-minded people. You have a chance to learn so much. There's a lot of times we're siloed in the institution where we practice or you know, particular. So having an opportunity to really broaden our horizons 
does so much for you know, the career going forward. You never know how your career is going to evolve. I don't know when Nitin was in medical school, if he thought climate change would be you know, such a, a major part of you know, his passion, or his career. And so I think getting involved in societies is very, very you know, helpful element for career development. Yeah, it's hard to sort of pick one strand. I've had the fortune of a lot of good mentors, and there's also been some advice that I've ignored. I think some have told me to focus extremely, and, and others have told me to have a really wide portfolio and multiple irons in the fire. And I think I've veered towards the latter in terms of providing the most prospect for opportunity. So it's very flattering for you all to call me an expert in climate change. I am not. I think it, it is one of the few things that I do, but it's something that brings me joy and feels like it sort of a, it completes my vision of, of my field and like doing good. So I, I think like the attending to the overlap of interest and opportunity, I think it's also like, this is a, just happens to be a content area where like no one is really an expert right now. So I think if anyone who's interested wants to make this their career, this is like prime opportunity. Well, guys, I got to say, thank you so much for being with us today. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for having us. This is an incredible learning experience and it's such an important issue. So really glad that you guys are choosing to highlight it. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great. Can't wait to see what we have next year. We do like a reprival of this same topic. I feel like in a year's time, in two years time, we would have learned so much more as well. So this is quite exciting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.